Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. episode number 161 of the podcast. Today we are joined by Jim Penman. Now, for those who haven't heard the name Jim Penman, he is the founder and CEO of Jim's Group. Now, that all started with Jim's Mowing, and I can guarantee people have seen the Jim's Mowing logo, and that is a picture of Jim's face in his wide brim hat. Now, he now has 4,000 franchises around the world with an approximate turnover of $500 million a year. Now, that is insane because it all started in 1982 when Jim had a $24 investment that started with his first mowing company. Now, everything he's done now, he talks about um, starting a business, a franchise, things that have worked well for him, lessons he's learned over the years. Um, And the biggest one for me is that the customer is always right and that the quality of our job and what we leave with is something that represents us. And that is something he prides himself on. He's still heavily involved in the business and we talk about so much more. This is the most recognizable franchise in Australia alone. And that is why today's chat is going to blow your mind. Guys, enjoy episode Sorry, 161. everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited. I've got Jim's mowing, the number one man, the biggest franchiser in Australia, Jim Penman. How are you, buddy? I'm great, thank you. Now, mate, we'll just talk a little bit off air. We're both actually in Victoria, which is a beautiful place. It's coming into spring, the sun's getting out there. Perfect time to be mowing lawns, mate. Yes, it is, actually. I'm looking forward this afternoon. I got to my farm after I finished the course and uh, spent some time digging potatoes and stuff. Nice, mate. Nice. It's great. So do you – this is a question that I was sort of thinking about. Do you still mow your own lawn, mate? Um, Not not here because it's too big. It's like like five acres. But uh, at my farm, I do, yeah. I have a battery-powered mower, which I, I use up there. Perfect. Nice, mate. So looking after the environment as well, I like that. Now, for people uh, listening, I've got quite a lot of listeners around the world that, um, Jim, you've got close to 4,000 franchises all over the world now, but it all started back in 1982 with a $24 investment. Do you want to sort of give paint the picture for listeners around the world of um, how it all started, mate? Well, um, I never intended to be a lawnmower contractor on business in any way. I My aim... Um, was to understand the rise and fall of civilization. So I went to university and did a PhD in history. And gardening and then lawnmowing was my part-time student job. So that's how it started. And it was good. It was sort of exercise. And I loved being outside and, and you know, with quite good money. And, and so that was how I paid for myself. I even managed to buy a house, full house when I was a student. So it was not bad. But then uh, by 1982... I found that I had absolutely no prospects of any sort of academic career. My ideas were just too wildly unorthodox for anybody <laughs> ever to give me a job. And I was broken, deeply in debt. So I, I basically, um, I, all I had was some really crappy lawnmowing equipment and a trailer and, and 24 bucks for a bit of, bit of advertising. And, and so I just started so basically in desperation. Yeah, so obviously, you, and we'll talk about your passion, obviously, is history, and you've written books about that and everything like that from going to La Trobe Uni, but um, you must have enjoyed lawn mowing. You must have uh, uh, sort of found some uh, passion in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the outdoors. Even today, I, I just love being outside. I love trees. I love grass. I love gardens. I, I just I just really enjoy it, and and 
I also like being fit too. Exercise is great too. Even when I'm not actually physically working on my farm, I, I run or I play squash or, or I do something else. I just like to be active. I like to be fit and I like to be outdoors. So mowing for me is a perfect job, which is pretty important actually. People often ask what sort of business they should go into, you know, what kind of cleaning mowing, whatever. I'd say, what do you enjoy doing? That's the best guy because what you enjoy, you'll probably do the best at. And anyway, even if you don't, it's it's the best thing, it's the most fun thing. You know they've done a survey of different professions, and the, you know the absolute top two happiest people in terms of professions is gardeners and florists, and lawyers are about the bottom. Mm. And why do you think that is? Because they're outdoors, they're, um, they're soaking up a bit of vitamin D, um, they're moving their body. Do you think that uh, yeah. sort of really attributes to that? But there's, there's a lot of science behind it. Obviously, fitness is a very big thing. Fitness, fitness is, is a far better mood in hearts than any antidepressant, anything on the market. Fitness is fantastically effective at making you happy. But being outside actually has an effect too. The things like the, um, the smell of na- the smell of plants, it actually the pheromones have, a, have an effect on the body, which, you, which is quite different. So it's, it's the sunshine, it's, it's the natural world, it's green things, it's growing things. They actually, actually have a very profound effect on the psyche, particularly from people like myself who love them, but on anybody, actually. And that, that's one they found, even natural light is fantastic. They found that in hospitals, people who have access to natural light recover much faster than those who don't. That's mm, that's uh, a really good point, and I suppose you found being very fortunate. I suppose you make your own luck. I'm a big believer, Jim. But you found a career where you can move your body every day. You get the benefits of being outdoors um, with yeah. all of that and moving and, and making a good living. So when did it sort of you were out of university? You'd started your own, obviously the first ever Jim's mowing. When did it? When did you realise that um, that? there might be potential to franchise here or to um, subcontract other people out. How did that all sort of happen? Okay, well, when I started off, look, I, I knew nothing about business. My time was pretty pathetic in so many ways. I really didn't have a clue about anything. I, I made some really, really dumb mistakes, trust me, <laughs> stupid things. But one thing I had from the beginning, I was very fanatical about customers in, in a way that's unre- unreasonable. I just had to have the properties looking looking great. I hated letting people down. I really like hated it with a passion. I just had this emotional driver. I, I would I would go to extreme lengths. I would walk halfway across the lawn to pick up a ball of grass that was like one centimeter across and chuck it in so it would be perfect. I have to have it just perfect. I was one of the first contractors, even as a student, to have a brush cutter because I could get all the edges, do, do them all perfectly. So I had that kind of attitude. So what happened is even though I started – Actually, when I, after I started full-time, every lawyer in Melbourne died. It was, it was a not great time to start. But because I was so fanatical about customers, and I, I could do other things like gardening and weeding and stuff, I, I, got, I started picking up work very, very easily. I found it extremely easy to pick up customers, and then i get repeat work, and then I'd get referrals from neighbors and all kinds of things. And so I soon had more work that I could handle. And, and what I started then was a business I, I actually – because – in fact, when I, I was doing my PhD, I got failed. They, they, they knocked me back on the first go. Um, and, then, and then my supervisor came back and said, would you like to resubmit? And, and I said, well, there's no point. I've got no academic career. And she said, well, look, you might have probably spent 10 years on this thing. So I said, <laughs> all right, okay. So I actually felt I had, to, um, I had to stop working for a while. So I thought the best way to do that was to sell my customers, sell my, my actual customer base to somebody as a going concern. 
So that's what I did. I put an ad in the paper, and I and I got somebody interested in buying my customer base because you see that way I'd get some money to keep on going and live while I was completing my PhD. Just for yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I put it, but all this time that happened, and I was talking to this guy. I kept on building up more and more customers, and then by the time he was ready to buy, I was still flat out. I had another lawnmower round going. Oh, this is so good. So I, I put the ad in again, and again the same thing happened, and um, it took a while to go through, and I kept on getting more customers, but people were ringing me, and by the time that was ready to go, hey, guess what? I had another business all ready to go. I did it three times. So I sold three different businesses all in a row, and then I actually did have some time, and I finished my PhD, and they actually gave it to me, strangely enough. Anyway. <laughs> but, the, but the point about it is I looked back on them, and I thought, well, hell, hell's I'm making a lot more money building up and selling more mowing rounds than I ever could take make as a as a mowing contractor myself. So I decided to make that into a business of building and selling businesses. And that's when I started putting subbies on because obviously the, the demand was so great. It was very easy to find work. So I just had to look after the customers until such time as they could be um, sold. So I had this I had this business and it was kind of going all right and, you know, I got out of debt and managed to buy my first house, with, you know, and, and, and I was I was fine and I thought, well, this is a little business that's going to puddle along until I find something more serious to do with my life. And then um, VIP hit Melbourne and, and VIP had like 250 franchisees. I went and faced in Adelaide and they had this, this organisation. They had all these trailers and uniforms and a fancy office in South Melbourne, all this all this powerful stuff. But I, I really completely panicked. I just thought, these guys are going to bury me alive. And, and I went to the – I actually approached them. And I said, look, I, I don't want to compete with you guys. You're far too, you know, well entrenched for me. What if I just can my customers to you and help to build up VIP? And it's only after they said no to that that I decided I'd better try and, and, and see if there was any way I could compete with these guys. So I actually went to the expo, which was in 1988. And I went into the building and I took off the badge they gave me so I wouldn't know. I went up to the stand of VIP and I said, tell me about VIP. What's it about? So they told me. And then the state manager came in and said, that's Jim Penman. Don't tell him anything else. <laughs> Don't tell him anything. That's right. <laughs> but that was enough. I learned enough. I had their brochure and I looked at it and I thought, wow, there's some good point to this. I can understand how franchising could work. But you know what? I reckon... I could make a system that would work even better for the franchisee. Yeah. And I spent nine months getting contract written. And I most of that love was that. arguing with lawyers to try and get a contract that I'd want to write it, read to, to sign if I was the franchisee. And then I launched in, um, would have been about October 1989. And somebody asked me at that time how many franchisees I might have one day. And I said, look, I've got no idea if this will work, but one day, if I'm really, really successful, I could have as many as 100. <laughs> yeah. that's, how, that's how feeble my expectations were. Well, you've well and truly gone above that. Now, I, I just want to unpick that a little bit, Jim, because I love a few things you just said there. That It, it really sounds like the only real advertising you had was the, your quality of service and word of mouth from doing such a good job. And I think that's something that you um, talk about all the time. And from everything I've read about you, that the customer comes first, and that is the biggest selling thing. Yeah. So is, yeah. how important is word of mouth? Well, it was very useful. It was very useful. I mean, I used to advertise in local papers and, and leaflet drops and stuff like that, those kind of things too. I wasn't doing no advertising at all. But the main thing is what happens when a customer rings you. You see, things like, for example, I'll just give you an example. This is from, this is from the franchise system. 
um, and we and we can we can judge based on on surveys and so forth what happens. And we found that, for example, if you call back a client after they ring you um, later than two hours, you got less than fifty percent chance of picking up the job. If you ring back as reported by the client within the first two hours, but after the first ten minutes, you you can your conversion rate jumps to seventy eight percent. But if you ring back within the first ten minutes. It jumps to 85%. Wow. So when you call a customer back, that is a huge amount of difference. And then you've got to turn up on time. And then you've got to wear a uniform and look the part. And then you've got to do an absolutely spectacular job. And people would say to me, I never knew my lawn could look this good. That, that's what it's about. Yeah, I think I think that can really be applied to sort of any profession or any job out there or anything you're doing. If you really make it the best possible job you're doing, Jim, and and not only that, you look the part, you provide that, you turn up on time, um, and you give something that they they're really proud of. It's going to help you. And also, one thing you were doing there is you were probably ahead of the time with Google and Facebook and things with like IP and personal details and things that you were selling that before there was even a thing with lists. Is that is that something you realised you were doing back then? Uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love the honesty, mate. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I, I um I used to stick my 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 I, I called it Jim's mowing because it just was me mowing lawns. I mean, what are you <laughs> going to call yourself, your Jim, and your mowing lawns? So Jim's mowing. There wasn't there wasn't more than about five minutes before it went into that one. <laughs> and, what, and what I found was that. When I put my pictures on a leaflet, and goodness knows why, because I'm a pretty ugly character, it made people call me more often. It worked better. Okay. So, so when I franchised, all I said was, well, you can't put your photo on a uniform. So I got some graphic designer to artist to, to take a picture and turn it into some graphics. I mean, it was kind of like a <laughs> – it must have spent all of one or two hours thinking about the whole thing. I really didn't, didn't put much thought into, into it at all. Well, it's uh, it's a very iconic logo. So, do you do you still wear on the farm your Terry Tailing hat? Actually, <laughs> um, I wear a broader hat because I Terry Tailing hat is is good because it's um, actually it's more like an army hat, the, okay. the, the real one. Um, it's it's good because when you when you're mowing lawns, you're going under under branches a lot, and if you wear a broad brim hat, it gets knocked off. And I've got pretty fair skin, so so I, I want something to protect me, but I want something that doesn't come off too easily. That's why I used to wear it. Nice. These days, if I'm actually out in the open, I'll wear more of a broad bin hat. Actually, I've got a gym bookkeeping hat, of all things, that I wear on the phone. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So let's when when it started booming, so you obviously, Jim's mowing was going well. You started, I think, franchising about uh, 1989. Um, and since right. then, mate, uh, it's just gone crazy, Jim. But um, what was it like for you? How, how long were you mowing for from when you started to then when you realized, oh, I've got probably a, a big opportunity here to build the business and be the face of it? And, and keep expanding. What what did that look like for you, you personally? Well, I was buying lawns for about 15 years in total. Okay. From the time I started as a student and then after I, I mowed lawns until 88 and, and the business just getting a bit big at that time. It wasn't – but, you know, again, it's not as though I had some great vision about what this thing could be. It just – what I ever did was look at the business and, and, and think how can I improve what I'm doing right now? How can I how can I do it better? I just asked myself the question. And for the last, you know, 37 years, I basically asked myself the same question every day. How can I do it better? And and, and tiny, tiny little things. It's not the giant ideas. It's not the idea, hey, you're suddenly mowing more and you think, what about franchising? And then you're a multimillionaire. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's the little, little, tiny details of everyday life. How do you save a half second going around a tree? How do you organize your grass pickup? How do you respond better to a client? How do you just... Thousands and thousands of little ideas. 
And one of the, one of the principles I have right now is that every franchisee in Jim's group has my direct phone number and email address, and they contact me frequently. And I'm always getting ideas from them about things that can be improved all the time. That's, uh, I had one this morning, actually. Just somebody approached me about something, and I thought, that's a good idea. Let's do that. I think that's uh, that's a really good uh, analogy as well, that um, you're constantly looking at ways to improve and that you're not always the best at that. And, and is that sort of your model there, Jim? Well, I'm, that... I'm, I'm often the worst. <laughs> I don't believe that. how bad I am at so many things. <laughs> I love that. So obviously now, you've, as we said before, you've got over close to 4,000 franchisees all over the world. Um, they contact you, everything like that. You've got a massive turnover, around $500 million a year, Jim, and this is just crazy. So um, what are some of the lessons that you have learnt over that time? Because obviously you didn't have a vision. You, you thought you might only get a – you'd be happy with 100 franchises. But now you've got so many. You've got this huge company, probably the most well-known Australian franchise going around. Um, what are some of the lessons that you've taken or learnt from over those years? Okay, well, let's talk about franchising because that's obviously something that we're you know, reasonably good at. Um, there's one key principle behind my attitude towards franchising, and that's my first priority is the welfare of my franchisees. That comes before anything. It comes before short-term profit. It comes before anything. You've got to work out a way to make your franchisees into raving fans. And we do a lot of weird stuff that people think is extraordinary. Like, for example... Our franchisees can vote out their franchisors. They can change to a different franchisor if they're happy with the service. Um, once a year, they're asked to, in an anonymous um, questionnaire, in a survey, they're asked to rate their franchisors, have a looking after them, and, and, and without fear or favor, because the franchise doesn't know how each one base. And then based on that, we give out awards or even, in some cases, obviously, breach notices. So we're, we are fanatical about it. Our franchisees... We cannot take regular clients off them without their consent or any kind of client unless the customer asks us to. They, they can veto changes to their own manual. I mean, we're always looking at ways to look after our franchisees better. We're very, very conscious of that. That's the absolute core principle. And if you look at the problems in going on in franchising with people like Retail Food Group, who are a real bunch of animals, as far as I can see, I just see red when I see what they've done. Basically, they've had to choose, let's screw the franchisees for every dollar you can you can you can get and 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 it and it's and it's destructive and it's evil and it's very very bad business mm. well, i suppose and that, again that that ends up coming back down to um their principles i suppose and your vision that you want your business to succeed and if people are succeeding then they're doing a good job they're happy and it's going to reflect on the whole product is that sort of where that comes from jim yeah of course yeah our, our primary goal is to look after our franchisees we're also passionate about customers, but that's the same goal because if you look after the customers well, and sometimes franchisees feel I'm too tough. There's no question about it. they get very irate at me because I'm, I'm hammering customer service all the time and complaints and surveys and all kinds of things like that. But by looking after customers well, we get more work. I mean, the interesting thing about Jim's is that in recent years, we're still growing, but not as fast as they'd like, but our customer base is rising faster. We, last year, we had more than 180,000 people we knocked back for work, which is about one in four. Wow. The demand for our services. And that's not because we advertise them a lot. In fact, some of our franchisors have given back hundreds of thousands of dollars to their franchisees because their guys are flat out year-round and they just can't spend the money. 
So does that does that come down to obviously as we said before you're the most recognised franchise in Australia and people know you and they know the service and the quality that you provide so that they they come directly to you for that work because because generally they get a good experience yeah that that's the point but and one thing I would say too is is we're one thing very strong on we are really fanatical about service and we're really unforgiving of people who will not offer good service in the long run we will. Send them, we will send them complaints, we will send them letters, we will breach them, we will terminate if they don't look after my customers, because that's hurting everybody else. Um, but at the same time, it, it's all about it's all about um, it's all about looking after them and making them successful. Mm, that's really good. So um, obviously these days are a little bit different from when you started. What what does a typical day look like for you now, Jim? I know you just said before that um, all franchisees have your email and your phone number, which is an amazing thing for a company so large. But what does a typical day look like for you these days, mate? Okay, I get up in the morning. Um, I usually look and start to look at emails straight away. I get a lot of emails, if you might imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> I, take, I, take my, I take my kids to school, which is great. I think one of the great things about being in business is the flexibility to spend time with your children. So I get a chance to talk to them um, about all kinds of things, and about their lives and about science and anything at all. So I get to know them. I come back, do a few more emails. I might uh, I, I wander around the office. Um, I'm the only person in gyms who can delete complaints or poor surveys, which I do quite often when there's reasons for it. So I, I keep a very close eye on all that. I went around the office. I talk to people, ask what they're doing. I talk to my franchise. Most people ring me for advice. You know, somebody rang me this morning about um, a couple of several different issues about complaints, about problems with um, talking to some one franchise or about why he wasn't growing and how he how he deals with franchise prospects and so forth. And and sometimes I give. Like this week, it's a, it's a training week, so I've been giving um, talks for, for several hours. In the evening when there's trainings, I go down and I, and I try and, and meet and talk to as many of my trainees as possible. I try and treat, talk to everyone face-to-face so that they know me, so that if they've got problems, they'll contact me when they need to. So just a whole range of different things, you know, doing this podcasts and things. I yeah, mean, yeah, yep. Um, the, great, the great strength I have is, is that, Dale, is that I'm, I'm not very good at doing very much. <laughs> I'm really pretty incompetent in most ways. Well, look, for example, I'm not I'm not very good at accounts. That's all a mystery to me. I have a wonderful, wonderful accounts um, manager, um, Cynthia, and, and her team, and they're and they're fantastic, and I and I trust them totally. And I've got I've got John who looks after the, the sales side of it, and he is he is brilliant. He's a thousand times better than me. And I've got Joel who looks after the um, social media and stuff and manages the office. And I got Leah who's in charge of the of the um, compliance and the documents. And Yadrin is in is in looking after insurance. And I've got Liv and Eugene look after the IT and the software development. So I've got I've got fantastic staff, all of them who do their job a thousand times better than I could. And I just go and just wander around and talk to them and see you know how we can how we can do things better. Yeah, but the one thing you I love about that is, and I think people listening anywhere, Jim, can really adapt to this, that you don't have to be the best at everything. Find your strength and do it well. And what you're really good at is relationships and those human connections. And it sounds like even though as businesses got bigger, that's the biggest emphasis you're doing. And you've just mentioned that, that you get to all the talks, you try and talk face-to-face. So how important is that human connection, that face-to-face interaction instead of like a text, an email or a call? Well, yes, it's great. I, I love to talk to people face to face as much as possible. But I, we love to, we try and get our franchisors to come in and franchise as much as possible, so we can we can meet them face to face and talk to them directly. But look, don't put me on some kind of a pedestal on that one. I'm actually notoriously 
poor at, um, I don't know, my, my wife says I've got borderline Asperger's because I'm so socially inept. So it's kind of like um, I, I don't have that sort of sense of, of natural censorship that, that tells you not to say stupid things. So I'm often saying <laughs> stupid things or offending people without meaning to or, or, or I get cranky or I get irritable at people. And which one of the like emails is you control it better. So you, I'm, you I'm can, kind of, yeah. I'm not particularly good at, at I'm not particularly good at anything. Jim, come on, come on. What, what are you good at, mate? You've, uh, you've you're running such an amazing company, and all I hear is you say you're not good at things. Surely, what what are your top three strengths that you are the best at in well, the world? I, I, I struggled to find three, but but look, it, it's not that unusual because um, they did a study of people who were at college in America, and they looked at who was the most successful, and they weren't actually the top students. They tend to be pretty ordinary students, but people who who weren't good at doing things. The people who were really good at doing something tended to do that only. They were lawyers or accountants or whatever. But the people who weren't good at doing anything in particular actually had to find other people to do the different things that they weren't good at, and that mm. sort of helped them to build the business. Look, I'd say the one strength that I've got is I'm very, very creative. Ah, there you go. And that's, I believe, Jim, that that is the number one asset anybody can have. If you can be creative or you can play and you can imagine things, um, particularly like a child, all right? And it sounds like you haven't lost that as the years have gone on, mate. No, no, not at all. Well, that's not sunk my, my academic career because I went into, I, I really intend to be an academic, but my ideas were so wildly unorthodox. <laughs> there's no possibility. Now, I'm actually running a research foundation. And I've actually been testing out some of these ideas on rats, believe it or not. And we found some really interesting results. And I think we're going to get some, some billion-dollar drugs and stuff out of it eventually because I think we're going to change the world. That's my, that's my view. And that's because my ideas were so different. They challenge every way of looking at history, of psychology, everything. It's economics, totally revolutionary. So that killed my academic career. But in business, being, being unorthodox is okay because you don't get judged by whether you're orthodox or not. You get judged by whether it works. So there's so many things that we do in gyms that nobody else in the world does, like voting out franchisors. Who ever heard of such a thing? Nobody does that. Or changing different franchises or or the ability to walk away from the business if you're not happy with it. Just pay us four grand and you can walk away and go independent. We never stop anybody going. There's a whole stack of things. I could mention dozens more that we do that nobody in the world does. I'm good at that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. I, I, I like that, mate. And well, the thing that you've just said there, that that's other people's opinion, that your ideas are so whacked and um, that they're so left centre, but they're obviously not. Do you find that, and you've probably got this over the years, that people are telling you you're doing things wrong or that you should be doing it this way. How how have you been able to block out that? Because whatever you've done has been amazing, mate. So um, I can imagine you've had a lot of haters, a lot of doubters, um, and a lot of people telling you that you're not going to succeed along the way. Well, often they're right because they do do a lot of stupid things. <laughs> so <laughs> someone was wrong. <laughs> you ask my wife, she would tell you all the mistakes I've made. Oh, I'm sure she would. <laughs> but, uh, I, but I love her dearly, though. She's so wonderful. But anyway, she certainly lets me know when she thinks I've done, done something dumb again. Um, look, in, in a sense, I don't really care. It's like I, when, I was, when I was a student and when I was doing my PhD and stuff, as I would say, I don't care if there's a room full of, of, of professors with masses and masses of degrees and youth brains telling me I'm wrong. I don't care if you've got no valid reason. But if a 12-year-old kid says, okay, Jim, here's some evidence for why you're wrong, then I'd listen. 
Okay. And most people aren't like that. Most people will listen to the person, take the person's opinion, but simply because they give it. And I want to know the reason. And if I think I'm right, then you haven't given me a good reason. Well, you can go and jump, take a flying jump. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. Oh. I'm one of those people that's very emotionally tough. My wife says I'm like one of those, you know, those, those, those plastic things, blown up things with the weight in the bottom? Yes. And you knock it down, that spring it bounces back like up. I'm just totally resilient. <laughs> I do not care what anybody thinks. If they think I'm wrong, everybody in the world doesn't think I'm wrong. If you haven't got evidence that I'm wrong, well, I couldn't give a stuff, I'll try it. Now, maybe I am wrong, but I, I need the evidence behind it. And that's just, a, that's just part of my, my temperament. Well, I think that's a, a massive quality that you've got right there, Jim, because resilience these days, it's I think because we're so connected and uh, there's so many different voices and people know everything you're doing, that to have that quality and that confidence in yourself, that is um, that is a, like a superpower, mate, that I feel you have. Um, do, you, do you take time to reflect and sort of look back at what you've been able to achieve? And like, what, what are you most proud of from everything you've been able to do so far, mate? Okay, I'll tell you the one thing I'm most proud of is that my franchisors in general, we've got about 300-something-plus regional franchisors and divisionals who own business and look after the franchisees. But one thing I'm most proud of is that most of them pretty much share my values. Most of them really genuinely care about their franchisees. That is more important than anything. It's more important than numbers. It's more important than money. It's more important than anything that we really, really care. And I tell you what, you know the thing that gives me greatest satisfaction is not sitting here and thinking I've got 4,000 franchisees. That's, that's meaningless. What, I'm satis- what makes me happy is when I talk to a franchisee who's got a great life, who's, who says, I, I see my kids. I ring my franchisees when they get certain milestones, like 10, 15, 20 years and so forth, and I ring them and I speak to a guy and he says, this is wonderful. I have such a better life. I've got a better family. I see my kids growing up. I'm so happy. That is the greatest thing. And the thing that hurts me most is when somebody fails. I mean, I never, ever, ever get over that. It mm. hurts badly. I hate it. So do you, do you sort of take that on board and take it personally that um, yes. you, like you could have done something better? Is, is that sort of your yes. mentality? Yes, yes. I look at it and I say, what did I do wrong? What could I have done? Now, this person, I, I wouldn't even know. Somebody's ringing me trying to get out and stuff. I look at it and why. And we've got a new division that's just started, uh, Roller Doors, actually, and um, – the franchisees are not doing well, and and that and I've, I've actually said to the to we've made an arrangement. There's no more sales until the people are successful, and and um, we're not going to do any more sales, and we're not charging the fees right now either. In any way, no no fees, nothing, until they're successful, and and if we can't make it work, then we'll we'll get them we'll get them transferred to other divisions. Yeah. So not everything we do works out, Dale. It's just. You've got to try things sometimes, but then you just got to do everything possible. We had one division that we shut down. It was interior design. We had four people who couldn't make money, and that was clear. They were good people. There was nothing wrong with them. The system wasn't right. So we actually basically made a deal. We got them all cleaning franchises. One of them is now really successful. She's an incredibly successful franchisor, very smart lady, Nicole, also, also teaches in our course. But, you know, not everything works out. You always got to work to do it better. See, the other thing I would say, and I, and I talked about being creative, and I do have that ability. I'm very unorthodox in my thinking. The other thing that I've got is this, this intense passion. I am just very, very focused, and, and, and I speak about it all the time in a, in a very intense way. And that, and that has gone through the organization. So my personal values for service, 
service to, to customers, but particularly service to franchisees, because I'm so passionate about it and I'm talking about it all the time, it, it becomes part of the DNA of the organization and it's very widespread. But even my franchisees are like that too. You would find Jim's franchisees on the whole are very willing to help other franchisees. They always want to give them advice and they'll spend a lot of time. We had a we have a very big concern with mental illness right now, which is a terrible problem in this country. And one of the things my research is aimed at, and um, we something really terrible happened last year, which you might have come across, where one of our franchisees killed their three little girls and his wife and, and his mother-in-law. And that was really deeply shocking to everybody because Jim's is a bit like a family, even though there's nearly 4,000 4, of us. I went over to Perth and I spoke to most of the franchisees that came to a meeting and they were really, really upset and shaken by it all. And we did a whole lot of things out of that, um, sending out you know, preach magnets with help lines and we're trying to organise a counselling service and mental health training for the franchisors. But one of the things we that they came up with, not me, it was them, they said, we want to, what about mentors, franchisees who can help other franchisees in difficulties? You know, if they've got problems, something to call, something to, something to talk to. Here's a person you can actually talk to if you've got issues, you want it just a friendly year. And you know what? About half the people in that room put up their hands and said, we'll volunteer. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And it just shows, I think it really comes down to quality of people and that deep down we all do want to help and we all do want to lend a hand. But I just think sometimes, Jim, people don't know where to start or what to do. Do you find um, by now that they've got a purpose or they've got a one division, like they're a mentor, you know, they've got one thing to look after that person and help them. Does that sort of give them an easier way to show that kindness or show that gratitude or just give them a bit of like empathy? Are you finding because they've got that that one role now that is really having a big impact on the franchisees but also your organisation? I don't know. I really don't know have any direct – this is only fairly recent. It's only been the last few months. Um, I don't know what effect this has. There's only certain people appointed. They're they're sort of trained and and helped and supported. So it's not that many people doing it. There's just a few in every state that have taken this on. Look, I don't know. I I, I just know that – it's, it's a funny thing, Dale. When we started off, I guess I thought what you're going to do to get a successful franchise is you've got to train people well, you've got to give them plenty of work, and you've got to give them advice on helping the business. But in actual fact, what we found is really, obviously, yes, you need train, and that's we can measure the effectiveness of training because it looks at the attrition rate, the effect on attrition rate, and it's dramatically successful. If you train them well, you're much less likely to lose them, especially in the first year. Um, obviously having work is very important too and all the other things that we do. But in the long term, what really seems to matter is the quality of relationship, the sense of community, coming to meetings, having friends, talking to people who are doing the same things. Now, maybe about how to improve your business, but maybe about about how to get on with your wife or or anything. Just just being having that sense of community, that connectedness is very important. Yeah. We've also found, too, that when you look after franchisees, it's not so much a matter of sitting down and doing a business review with them. It doesn't have much effect. What's important is ringing them as often as possible and saying, mate, how are you? How's it going? How was your week? How'd you go with that quote? Just often very short conversations that keep in touch. And we found that franchisors who do really well actually tend to have phenomenal relationships and they tend to grow their business at the same time. Yeah, that's because a- they're not 
they're not looking after the money first, they're looking after the people first. Yeah, and that's so true with uh, yesterday obviously being Are You OK Day, and um, the simple thing you just said there is that you've created a community and people feel part of something. They've got that belonging there. When you're part of something, um, you're more inclined to, you know, um, offer so much more and have that value for everybody. So I think that's a great not only for business owners out there, but for anyone, school teachers, coaches, parents, kids, um, if you can, you know, be there for each other and build that community and, and you know, have regular contact with those people, um, it makes a huge difference. I, I, I think that's a really good point. So, Jim, you've got a couple of books out there as well, mate. I know um, one is, there's a couple on history, I'm pretty sure, but then there's also one about uh, sort of your story. Yes. Well, there's actually there's actually a couple of books. There's a book that I wrote myself, which we um, it's called um, the latest version is called um, Every Customer a Fan, and there's also one written by a lady called Catherine Woolenshop called Jim's Book, um, which is interviews with myself and more than a hundred people who know me, and uh, that's <laughs> that's a warts and all account that that that, <laughs> puts the, that puts the bad stuff as well as the good. So. Uh, <laughs> Some of the stuff that she wrote was uh, a little bit surprising, I've got to say. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with some of the things people said too, but it is a, I think it's a pretty fair account overall. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was pretty, some things I wish she hadn't put in, so all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's done now, mate. I like that. So um, at the end, we'll have uh, links where you can check those books out as well. Now, Jim, I'm aware of your time, mate, and you've given so kindly today. I've just got, before I let you go off to the farm and um, enjoy a little bit of the Friday Melbourne sunshine, buddy, um, I've just got a couple of questions I always finish off my interviews with. And um, the first one is if you could look back to 18-year-old Jim, all right, from everything you've done now, mate, from having nearly 4,000 franchises, from getting your PhD, from um, just your life, you know, being a father, being a husband, everything you've done. If you could give 18-year-old Jim one bit of advice, what would that be? Uh, go to church. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, I was I was actually at 18, I was, a, I was an out-and-out um, anti-Christian atheist, you might say. So I, um, and I became a Christian when I was 28. And by cheap as I wished I'd found out that earlier. <laughs> I actually went to a Billy Graham crusade about that time and I, and I was sort of jeering for going down the front. I thought it was rubbish. And, and then I, and then I met God later through the Christian union at the tribe and, and it, it transformed my life. That was a, yeah, that was the most amazing thing. That was just a change beyond all belief. And, and, and I love, that, that faith is the, is the core of my life with everything I do. And if you look at the way Jim is occupied in terms of service, service more than anything else, that's, that's, that's very fundamentally Christian values. Now, we don't talk about normally in Christian terms, but that's what it is. Yeah. So I'd say get, get right with God, even if you didn't believe in him at the time. Get right with God. Find him and then, and then make that the core of your life. Mm, I, I like that, and I think it uh, that really comes down to even if you don't believe in God, but just finding something that you're a part of or something that you believe in and you want to devote yourself to, and, and it gives you a bit of a purpose and a belonging. So I yeah, think that's it, I think that's a really true. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really it's interesting. You know, and the principles in the Bible are actually very, very sound principles. They've done a lot of studies, and I'm very keen on the science of happiness. And look to what makes people happy. Well, actually, buying yourself a better car or a better house has stuff or effect on your happiness. But you know the thing that makes people most happy, and this is scientific studies. This isn't this isn't religious. This is just science. They say giving it away, get involved in something that's important, that's meaningful to you. Give your money away. Give your time. That's the way you're going to achieve 
real joy in life. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's finding that, as we said, that purpose and belonging, being part of something that, you know, makes you feel special and the people around you. And um, that's uh, you buy a car, that'll wear off. You buy a new house, it'll wear off. They're nice things, but deep down, happiness doesn't come in items. And I think that's a really good point that you've just mentioned there, Jim. So, um, mate, what legacy do you want to leave on the world? You've obviously built such an amazing business. Um, your devotion to customers and your franchisees and the impact you're making on their lives is unbelievable. But um, what legacy do you want to be remembered for, mate? I know you've got a lot of good years left, but what do you want to be remembered for, Jim? Um, my science, more than anything else. I, I, want to, I want to change the way people think about society. And, and there's, there's things that we're developing, especially with the new science of epigenetics using CRISPR and so forth, could change the world dramatically in very, very fundamental ways. That is, frankly a thousand times more important than anything that I achieve in any other way. Um, now, after that, my family, I'd have to say. My kids, I've got 10 kids, um, and I'm proud of them. Um, I want the best for them. Um, there's, a, there's a very wise saying that says, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. Mm. And, and obviously, I'd like to see, mm. I'm proud of the lives that have been transformed through gyms and the fact that people, generally speaking, do do so well. We know they do well, and they know most franchisees are successful, and they're happy with what they do, and, they, and their lives are better, and their families are better for that. I hope that'll continue after I'm gone. I expect to be in the harness for at least another 20 years, based on my normal life expectancy, because yep. I'm pretty healthy. Um, and I, I hope to leave a structure after that that will stop my franchisees from being screwed by some greedy capitalist who just wants to get a short buck. Mm. So there's a lot of thought going into how that will be done make sure that the people who come after me are going to look after my franchises properly. Mm. I, I, I love that, Jim, and um, I think that's a really nice sort of way to finish. And I, I know people that are, are listening, um, the principles you have for business and your life can be applied and adapted into any walk of life. It doesn't matter what country and what you're doing, and it doesn't just have to be about business, but they are sound principles, um, and I, I've really enjoyed that today. So people are listening along, mate, where, where's the best place to find you to get your books, um, You know, read a little bit more about the epic work you're doing? www.gyms.net meet Jim meet Jim well everybody's go in there <laughs> go Facebook live every Wednesday at 7 o'clock answer any questions ask any questions you like I never refuse to answer a question you'll see you'll see all my bio history stuff in there all my books far more about me than you could possibly want to know there's a day <laughs> in the life of Jim just being put up and it actually shows me answering emails and running on my treadmill and, and taking my kids to school and, and just there's an, an unbelievable amount of stuff in there already. Perfect, perfect. Well, I'll, I'll have links uh, for that, guys. This is episode number 161, um, and the links will be in the show notes. So, Jim, thanks for your time today, mate. I, I know how busy you are, mate, and um, to give up, you know, 40 minutes of your day to share your knowledge and the passion and uh, the lessons you've learnt over the years from starting from, you know, one lawnmower to now having nearly 4,000 franchises all over the world. Um, hats off to you, buddy. Um, you've done an amazing job, and I just want to thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure.